Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Roshan Chikramain. I'm Joe Varelli. Our guest today is Dr. Samantha Semenko. Sam is the Director of Portfolio Intelligence at BridgeBio, a biotech startup with a unique hub-and-spoke business model that focuses on developing medicines for genetic disorders. The company just received its first FDA approval on March 1st, a treatment for an ultra-rare, life-threatening disease, molybdenum cofactor deficiency type A. Prior to joining BridgeBio, Sam spent four years as an associate, then as an equity analyst at Citi, a multinational financial services company where she specialized in small to mid-cap biotech. She's also an alumna of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where she earned her PhD from the pathobiology program in 2017. Sam, thank you for, so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah, thank you for having me. First, can you briefly introduce us to BridgeBio and your role there? Yeah, so BridgeBio is a bit of a unique company where they take more of an investment approach to developing drugs. Um, we currently have about 20 affiliates, and each of those are dedicated to developing just one drug and one, maybe two max disease areas. Um, and the idea is to have a bunch of, it's just sort of spread out your risk across many, many different um, diseases and, and drugs and development. So therefore, you can um, have a higher rate of return. Yeah. So stepping back and um, starting with how you got to that point, you did your PhD at Johns Hopkins and the pathobiology program. Uh, and it seems like you'd been proactive about pursuing specific interests in, in equity research. Uh, it looks like you did an externship at T. Rowe Price and as well as a, a separate role as an equity research assistant. Did you know at that time that you were looking for a career in equity research or something like that when going into the PhD? Definitely not. So, I mean, I came into a PhD probably thinking, like a lot of people that I knew when starting a PhD, you, you imagine you're going to end up with your own lab and that you're going to go the postdoc route. I think that was really encouraged when I when I started my PhD as well. Um I think around my third year in the program, I started to realize that doing bench work and having my own lab, it just wasn't the path I was most interested in. Um, and then I came to realize that I didn't really want to do bench work as well in any industry setting as either. So I started to think about some alternative careers and you know, the consulting club at Hopkins is wonderful. So I joined because that seemed like a nice way to apply a lot of my scientific knowledge and you know, problem solving critical thinking skills. Um, and just exploring that a little bit more. Um, it turned out that, you know, I did a bunch of consulting case uh, competitions. I think my, the group I was with, I think we won at least one, if not two second place prizes. Um, but it, it just never really felt right. Um, and I did a couple interviews and didn't get much traction there. And I realized that I wasn't too upset about it. So I think that that was sort of telling in retrospect. So when I kind of realized that, I, I didn't really know where to go. Um, and this is where I got maybe a little lucky. The career office had set up that, that internship at T.R. Price. Well, it's an externship, actually, at T.R. Price that, that you mentioned. And I decided to join that, not really knowing anything about finance, never taking a formal accounting class, none of that. Um, but I really, really enjoyed it. So I was on a team that 
with someone who actually was, I think, the head of the consulting club at the time. Um, but he knew the finance portion of it. And I got to focus on the science part of evaluating a company and a drug in development. And that was really when I said, okay, this might be something that I could see myself doing. Um, so from there, because I mentioned I had no finance background, I had had to figure out a way to teach myself. So I went to the um, undergrad campus and that's where I took a financial modeling course. And that was, I think what you mentioned, um, research assistant. Um, so I did two semesters at the undergrad campus, really just learning how to build a financial model and how to make something reasonable in terms of evaluating a stock. And from there, I definitely saw myself doing this as a, as a career and I applied to a bunch of jobs and I ended up at City. Cool. So I'm really interested to know how you develop this interest in biotech investing. I think as you just, you kind of just mentioned how you encountered uh, that side and perhaps how you developed some of the skills in that side. But at a certain point, you just mentioned you saw this as being a career for yourself. What was that switch? Were there any particular things about biotech investing that really set you off in that direction? Yeah, it's interesting because the investing part was actually a bit secondary to to my interest, which I know is probably different than a lot of other people who are considering this as a career. But I was most interested in evaluating the science and turning that into an investment recommendation. But you know, the recommendation itself was was in a way less interesting to me. But I, I really, yeah, I, I was I was drawn by the ability to evaluate drugs across many different uh, modalities, many different diseases and the ability to basically never be bored because there's so many biotech companies out there that you can you can look into um, that would that really appealed to me i think one of the things that made me realize i didn't want to spend um, time in a postdoc and eventually in my lab is you get kind of like pigeonholed into one little area if that's the route you take a lot of times and you're sort of stuck there becoming an expert but I like to jump around between many different things or else I get bored. And equity research, particularly the role of an associate in equity research, allows you to jump around to, I don't know, three, four different companies, sometimes on the same day. Um, so that really appealed to me. And I'm curious, what was the process of actually interviewing uh, for an equity position like? Did you have to take any because I'm more familiar with, you know, what you might do for consulting, right? That's what you hear about. But I don't remember ever learning about what you would need to do as an equity associate. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. Um, I got particularly lucky again. I think I've only ever interviewed for one position in equity research. And it, that was the position at City that I got. Um, and we could talk about networking and how I even got to that step maybe a little bit later. Um, but for my interview, which I think is pretty standard at City, although I can't speak to all banks because each analyst is going to have his own preferred way of interviewing their candidates. Um, for, for me, um, I had a quick, maybe 20 minute phone interview, just like an intro to see if I was serious, if I knew you know, the lingo about stocks, if I could pitch a quick stock to um, the analyst that was interviewing me. I don't think I did a good job, but I must have done an okay job because he you know, then reached out and said, okay, I want to give you a writing test, which is really important because I spent maybe 80% if of my time writing research notes or initiation reports. So it's a very writing intensive, intensive job. Um, so he sent me a phase two publication from the New England, Medi uh, New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine. Um, and he basically said, this is a phase two study, read it and tell me which questions you want answered in a phase three. So I wrote up like a four page report response to that. 
And the idea now, looking back now, I know he just wanted to see, was I a good writer? Could I write about things in a clear way? Um, so once I passed that particular test, he then gave me a model test. So um, the way this was structured is it came with an Excel sheet that was half filled out and like a Word doc with instructions. And I basically had to build out a revenue model for a um, for a drug, like drug X, I think it was called. Um, and then take that and build out, you know, your income statement, your balance sheet, your cash flow, and then build a DCF from scratch and arrive at a target price. And if I could do all of that within a three hour period, I passed the test. And from then it was an in-person interview. So I met with my, my future analyst and I met with a couple other people at city. Then this part, I believe is like more just like a personality test. Like, will you fit with the team and are you personable and do we trust you enough that, that when you get to the point where you can talk to clients that we think that you're going to be able to communicate clearly? Um, and yeah, so it was a pretty, pretty intensive interview process, I would say. Yeah. And just to follow up, so you mentioned the networking aspect helped you get informed of the job. Um, so it wasn't something that maybe you would expect to see advertised um, so openly, or is that, or I guess my question is, do people typically find positions in equity via networking as opposed to like a traditional sort of candidate approach or even being contacted by a headhunter or something? Yeah. Um, so when you haven't spent any time actually doing the job, you're not going to be on the headhunter's radar. They tend to go on LinkedIn and they look for people with experience. Um, if you will probably find postings all over LinkedIn and you know the company websites, but what you do there, and then I did this many times, is you submit your resume and you submit a cover letter and you hope they call you back. And they never called me back, not one. I think I probably did like 15, 20 of them and I didn't get any responses. And the reason for that is because I had no experience and that's always what they want, you know, is to have experience. Um, that said, it's not necessary to break in. And biotech is a pretty unique industry for equity research because they want you for your PhD. They want you for your MD or, you know, any kind of, I know people with masters um, that don't have a higher degree that are doing really, really well in biotech um, because they have experience. So they want that experience um, and that critical thinking and the ability to uh, evaluate the science that comes first. They can teach you all of the finance and investing things on the job. You don't necessarily need a super strong background as I'm you know, clearly evident um, or a good example of that. Um, so the way that I got the job was in that financial modeling course that I took, um, there's a guest speaker and he was the head of capital markets at Bank of Montreal or BMO. And he knew that I was trying to break into the industry. And he said, well, if you give me your resume, I'll give it to our director of equity research. Maybe they have a position for you. Um, so the director of equity research was actually a very nice man. Um, he, he gave me a call. He said my resume was good. He just didn't have any positions, but he knew a couple recruiters. So he passed my resume off to a couple recruiters. And because it came from him, I think that's why it got some traction. Um, and one of the recruiters actually ended up handing my resume to um, my future boss at City, And so that was how I ended up getting the interview. Now, I don't say all this to be discouraging because um, there, clearly I got the job and I know many others who have a first job straight out of PhD as well with inequity research. So I guess just my advice there would be you know, network, find someone who knows a couple recruiters, which is basically anyone who currently has a job in equity research. And, you know, they can put your resume in the hands of someone who can potentially get it to someone who's hiring. 
So I know that when you're going into an equity research role, there are some qualifications that you have to have. I think Series 7, I think administered by FINRA, something like that. What are the qualifications that you need to um, enter into an equity analyst role? Yeah, you're, you're right. So there are four FINRA exams, but you do not need them before you're hired. Um, these are something that, that that the bank that hires you will pay for you to take, and they'll pay if they should pay for all of the materials as well because they're rather expensive. Um, so at City, and I know that City is pretty strict based on what I've heard for some other banks, but at City they give you five months to complete all four exams. So the Series Seven has a new name now. I think it's called SIE. Um, it, it's one of the longest ones, and then the 86 is very, it's uh, equity research focused. The 63 is all about state municipality laws. And the 87 is about like research, um, I guess compliance is the best way I could put it. So, so those are the four exams and, and they are very degrees of difficult. Um, but yeah, so I mean, once you get through them, you can actually put your name on research reports. Um, and if you don't pass them, banks won't let you put your name on research reports. So reflecting on the rule, uh, what were the day-to-day tasks and responsibilities that were associated uh, with being an equity research analyst? Yeah. So, you know, when you're just starting, it's it's a bit like drinking from a fire hose for lack of a better platitude. Um, whereas I joined and we were covering 22 companies already and I didn't have any experience or any background on any of them. So you're learning... I don't know, 10 oncology companies, four rare disease companies, a couple ophthalmology, a kidney, and they're just across the board with different like drug modalities. So a lot of your time is just sort of like spent trying to understand your companies and and to know what they're doing um, and what their next catalyst is. But once you sort of like reach that point, maybe like six months in, you finished your FINRA exams, you know all of your companies decently well, like the day-to-day job is if there's news that's breaking, say that morning, a company has data they put out in a press release, you know, you're on that call that the company is having where the analysts ask them questions and they're, you know, telling the public about their data. Um, and then you're going to write a research note about that afterwards. So it takes like integrating what the company says, you know, knowing the competition um, and how does their data stack up with the competition and what is your opinion about this? Is it good? Is it bad? Is there any like nuance you should point out in your research note? Because those are the things that investors really want to know um, when they read your investor, your research note. Um, so that that's like the most obvious part. Um, the other part in the background is you might be initiating on new companies. So a lot of times we would have initiation reports, which could be, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages, depending on the company. Um, and you're building a model to go with those. Um, so those were usually our background projects. We would also do something called deep dives, which are also longer research reports. So let's say we wanted to focus on one particular drug in a disease area and the major phase three catalyst is coming up and we just want to prepare investors. We want to give them all of the data and like, you know, things that they should be watching and, you know, all our thoughts on each of them and what good data would look like and how much we think it's worth to the stock if it, if it works, um, if the data is like meh or if the data is bad, like what should the stock price be? with all of those scenarios. Um, and then lastly, things that I don't think get really brought up or thought of is that you are working sort of with the investment bankers and they're the ones that are going to be taking companies public. So when they're thinking about doing a deal for an IPO, for example, 
they're going to have the companies talk to research and where you do what's called vetting them. So is it a good investment for city to be involved in this particular financing? And we would give it like a green light. Yes, we, we think investors will be interested in this. We think we can make money doing this. Um, red light, no, we don't believe in the science. Or yellow light, there's a catalyst coming up. Let's just wait for that data in another like six months, for example. Um, so we would have upwards of like 40, 50 vets at any given time that we are meeting with these companies. We're talking to their management teams. Maybe we're talking to some physicians about the particular disease um, that we don't know too much about on, so that we have a better understanding before we go and talk to the bankers and give our recommendation. And vetting in biotech, um, it takes up a lot of time. So I'd say that those were the main responsibilities day to day. So getting more into the technical, what qualities or characteristics do you consider when applying evaluation to a stock? And how is this process unique to biotech as compared to other sectors? It's a good question. So like when I'm thinking about building a revenue model for a particular drug, um, you're going to take into, you're going to think about one, how many patients are there in this particular disease? And of them, how many are actually the target population? Because you maybe you only treat severe patients and the mild, moderate don't need this particular drug. So you're already cutting down your population there. Um, and then, you know, from there, like what competition is there? Are you the only drug there? Or is there something already approved? Like, do you have to be a particular uh, amount better than the current standard of care in order to get used by physicians? Um, so that sort of goes into what we think about. Those are the kind of questions that I would think about for when I'm thinking about the market share for a particular drug. Um, then you got to think about pricing. So pricing is difficult. Um, a lot of times we'll use like industry comps. So if there's a drug that's already approved in this particular class or for this particular disease, you know, what makes sense there? Um, sometimes you have to do a bit more cost saving. So like how much would this drug save like pharmacoeconomic wise? Um, but those analyses are never very precise from our perspective. Um, and then from there, you want to think like, you know, how long will like how many months or whatever will this drug be used? So if it's oncology, you know, and you're only getting nine months worth of um, progression-free survival, you're only gonna be treated for like nine or 10 months, right? Um, whereas some diseases, you're gonna be taking this for the rest of your life. Um, so that's a consideration too. And then from there, we'll be able to calculate, you know, a revenue number annually. And we do something called probability adjustment. So let's say this drug is in phase one. Well, it hasn't shown proof of concept yet. So maybe we only give it a 20% probability success because you know, 15 to 20% is where most phase one drugs, um, only 15 to 20% of phase one drugs get approved. Um, if it's in phase three, we've already seen a phase one and phase two data set. We have proof of concept for this drug. Maybe we give it a 70% probability of success. If we're particularly bullish on a drug and we have, you know, XYZ reasons why we think this particular trial will work, we might up it to 80 or 90% depending on the situation. And I think that probability adjustment is very different than what you would expect from um, other industries. I think that's the key difference there. Yeah. And I think something that we've seen a lot more recently is that public companies enter the market, uh, even possibly without uh, having some drug in phase one clinical trials. So how do you look at uh, preclinical assets in that setting? Um, and, and sort of in the same way, how, how do you take on um, industry sentiment um, as a metric for how you value a stock? Yeah. So for example, gene therapy, 
uh, industry sentiment is very, oh, sorry, gene editing industry sentiment is very positive. Like those stocks have done very, very well and very minimal data. Um, whereas you have some companies that are in phase three and in particular industry and, and investors just don't care very much. So those stocks don't do much. Um, so that is something to consider. A lot of times we wouldn't let that particular aspect impact our valuation, but it is something when talking to clients that is important to be aware of. And, you know, there are many companies that are going public with um, only preclinical data and like plans to go into a phase one, like maybe six months to a year from when they IPO. Um, and it's interesting. So when you're evaluating companies like that, it, it's really on the, you know, how comfortable are you with their preclinical data? How comfortable are you with their platform? Um, is their target validated? So if you're coming in as a preclinical company with a brand new target, no clinical validation that you can point to outside of your company, that's a hard sell. But if I come in and I say, look, this target has been proven uh, for this particular disease, um, there's a clear match, nobody's targeting it, we think it's a huge opportunity, um, and look at our platform, this is all the validation we've done preclinically on our platform. You know, Those are the types of companies that are going to make it in an IPO, or you have something like, say, CRISPR did when they didn't have any data, any clinical data. I don't think they were in clinical trials when they um, IPO'd. You know, it was the promise of the platform and how like transformational that is. So I think those two things would be the types of preclinical companies that would be successful. Yeah. So you've mentioned that particularly the scientific diligence that you have to do, uh, when you're thinking about the biotech sector is a bit of the edge there. Um, so I'm curious to know what aspects of your background, having done biomedical research, um, having seen maybe even some part during your time, your PhD, seeing, seeing some part of the, um, of the industry, maybe in like a certain therapeutic area, advanced throughout your PhD and seeing how that played out. Um, I'm wondering what aspects of your um, technical training sort of give you that edge in uh, analyzing biotech companies in particular? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, I don't think I have that particular background that you're you're referencing. Um, I think the biggest thing that helped me uh, do biotech uh, diligence well is just the ability to think critically. And I mean, that is what I learned in my PhD primarily that I was able to use, um, you know, obviously outside of the things like knowing how all the techniques and how all the different experiments work and, you know, how those are applied and displayed and, you know, how you can maybe um, cherry pick your data, but you got to think critically about um, what experiments make sense, what experiments are the company is the company not showing you? Um, is there a flaw in this experiment? And should we be asking them if they did this particular, I don't know, XYZ experiments? Um, and then, you know, all the clinical aspects of evaluating biotech company, I didn't have much experience in. Um, so I learned a lot about clinical trial design and about, you know, what it takes for a company to move from one stage of the development phases to the next. Um, that was all learned on the job. And I think that that's completely doable for, for people entering the sector. I wanted to ask, uh, what's the typical career trajectory in um, equity research or within a specific equity group? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that, that you can do a lot of things with experience and equity research. So the obvious path would be you become an analyst and you have your own coverage um, and, you know, you build your franchise from there, um, which I think, you know, is is a the career path that I thought I was going to be on. Um, the other obvious ones is you could go and become one of the investors, like one of, you know, city's clients um, working in a hedge fund or along only doing buy side sort of investing. Um, you could also make the jump like I did, and you could go to um, a biotech. Uh, I think that you know the skills and the uh, analysis that goes into evaluating biotech companies is are very valuable for you know internal uh, work at a biotech as well. Um, and then the fourth thing that I, I didn't mention before was you could go into venture capital, which is you know just earlier stage investing, but the same critical skills are necessary. Um, in that particular field. And I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of, but I think those are probably the most obvious four. So if you were to stay within uh, equity research and and sort of take on that analyst role, uh, what's the typical progression and and sort of how do you get on that track? Yeah, so, so someone, let's take someone like me, for example, where your first job out of PhD is, is, becoming an associate, um, I'd say you're probably going to need about two years minimum before you would be like in a position to cover your own company. Um, for me, it was about um, two and a half. It was about the three-year mark, actually, was when I got approved internally from City to uh, be an analyst, a, a senior analyst on a company. But yeah, so I'd say about two, two to three years is when when you would have the skills and the experience necessary to be a senior um, analyst on a stock. Now, the way it works at City, it might be different at other banks, um, is that you know you become a junior analyst, so you're still working with your senior analyst. You just have your own coverage, like under his umbrella, his or her umbrella, um, and you're also supporting your your analyst him or her on all the other stocks that they cover too. So at the time when I launched coverage on um, my first stock as a senior analyst, we covered 37 companies, including mine. So that's quite a lot. Um, And the expectation was that within your first year as a junior analyst, you would have maybe four to five companies just under yourself. So it ends up being like more of a time management issue too. But once you you do that, um, you spend a couple of years, probably two years as a junior analyst before you're able to be promoted to a full senior analyst. And then from there, you'll get your own team. Um, you'll be able to have your own associates and really, really start to build out um, a critical mass of companies. Yeah. So it seems like you have to really be a sponge for a lot of diverse types of information. What tools do you use to stay informed on both your covered companies and maybe trends in the industry as a whole? Yeah. Just, you know, for me, I wanted to stay informed about companies outside of our coverage. Um, one, because a lot of them were competitors. And two, just because it's just good to be aware of what's happening in the industry. So in terms of like news sources, I followed Endpoint News and Stat News. Those were my two biotech news sources. But there are many, many um, different resources internally that's, that your bank or city, for example, would have that they pay for that you can use to help track things. Um, we spent a lot of time tracking clinicaltrials.gov as well so that we could know when new trials were coming on, when, say, like major protocol amendments were there. Um, also, you would want to follow 
like just the press releases that most companies are putting out, like that's the probably the easiest way to stay informed. Um, but you're right. It is a lot, a lot of information to sort of internalize at all the same time, you know, forming your own thoughts about these stocks. And I think it just takes some time to be comfortable in your coverage that you're able to do both at the same time. So now exploring uh, your transition from equity research at City to Bridge Bio, um, how did you first come across that opportunity? And was there something about Bridge Bio in particular that attracted you to the company? Yeah, so I, I think I might have alluded to this earlier, but I was pretty set on the analyst path. You know, I had launched on my first stock as a senior analyst, and I had plans. I'd already picked out the companies, um, the, the next four that I was going to launch on in 2021. So I really wasn't looking. Um, the one thing I will say that once you get into this position, because your skills are so transferable, recruiters do reach out frequently um, and, and and very often across a range of jobs. So I think it's smart for anyone in that position to you know build relationships with the recruiters. So I would often take meetings with them just to get to know them, for them to get to know me, you know, because you never know when you might be ready to make the next jump. Um, so that's what happened with um, this particular role at Bridge. A recruiter reached out. Um, I took the meeting and I just was very interested from the start. And like, it's a bit of a kind of like the same switch that I had like in my PhD when I was trying to, to gather all the skills that I thought were necessary to get an equity research job. I sort of had that same mentality switch pretty early on in the interview process. Um, and I think one of the things that attracted me the most was at Bridge Bio, I would actually have the opportunity to influence drug development for rare diseases. Um, and this gives me a much closer ability to impact people's lives. Um, and you can make an argument for it on the sell side at City, but it's and by saying that, you know, you're doing investment recommendations and you're helping these companies get capital so that they can go develop drugs, but it's, it's very indirect. Um, so that really appealed to me at Bridge is like, I could help develop some of these drugs and they're going to help patients. So I think that was what the main driver there. Um, but I also realized that I would be able to use a lot of the skills that I learned on the sell side in this particular role in portfolio intelligence. Um, I'm still looking at competitive analysis. I'm still building financial models. I'm still talking to physicians to find out what types of drugs they would be most interested treating their patients with. Um, it's just for an internal position rather than external. Yeah. So, you know, during your time as an equity analyst, you had to diligence a portfolio of, of companies. Um, at Bridge Bio, they have a portfolio of projects. Um, and this is this sort of strikes me as having a lot of transferable skills. And it's something you mentioned, a lot of transferable skills from the equity research position to the portfolio management position at Bridge Bio. Uh, so my question to you is first, what is portfolio management and what are some of those transferable skills between equity analysis and your current role? Yeah, so it's just Bridge Bio's ma uh, model is, is pretty unique. So each of the affiliates developing their one drug, I mean, their sole focus is that one drug. Um, so the idea of a central portfolio, portfolio intelligence role is to sort of look at the company as more of a whole. So I'm going to watch uh, development for, I don't know, affiliate A, A, B, and C. And I want to make sure that I integrate each of those into the company model. So we know how much we're worth, like what do we think um, from a valuation perspective, 
Um, but also like, what is the risk in each of these programs and how do we balance risk? Cause like, maybe we want to take on a super risky high reward uh, program, but we want to balance that with something that we think is a bit more, um, you know, what I'm looking for. Uh, we want to balance that with something that is, you know, much lower risk so that we actually, you know, end up having a return on investment at the end of the day. Um, so we do very similar things. Like we look at competitive intelligence. We try to stack up our drugs and what we know internally versus like all of the public information for all of these competitors. Um, we try to react to anything from a competitor and say like, how does this change our view on our internal program? Um, we, I mean, basically all the things you would do when you're analyzing an investment, only you're doing it from an internal perspective and you build an entire model for the company and portfolio intelligence sort of influences what goes into that model and how our thinking is changing. I wanted to ask you about the idea of risk in biotech. And maybe this could be generalized and the audience could think about it as just risk in science in general. Uh, because science and biotech is uh, notoriously messy. Sometimes things don't always work out the way people expect at the outset. Um, sometimes there are lots of pleasant surprises and, you know, targets like PD-1 become massive successes. That's one of the massive successes um, that's occurred over the years and people didn't really expect that. Um, and then in other cases, people are expecting, you know, big positive outcomes, but it, it doesn't always pan out that way. Um, so when you're thinking about um, uh, a specific disease program, um, how are you modeling that risk? How are you thinking about that risk? How are you assessing it? Is is it like a distribution of outcomes? Um, how are you thinking about whether a program will uh, work out ultimately? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the million dollar question. I think that all investors would love answered. Um, and gosh, I guess I'm going to come at it from a couple different perspectives. So first depending on which type of disease this is, you might have differences in risk. So for example, an oncology drug might have a higher failure rate than, um, I don't know, any other type of drug. <laughs> um, say like, I don't know, ophthalmology or, or diabetes drug or something. Um, those might, you know, have a better success rate. So, and there, there, there are studies you can find on, you know, delineating out the different um, indications. Uh, so, so that's first of all. Um, second of all is the target, which I think we discussed a little bit, you know, how well validated is that target? You know, how much confidence do I have if you modulate this with a drug that you're actually going to impact the disease? Um, two is, then is, goes into the clinical trial design. So is the endpoint correct? Like, are we actually looking at the right endpoint for this particular drug? Um, and conversely, is this an endpoint the FDA cares about? Like, is it something that they're going to approve on this endpoint? And then further from that, like compares really want to know about like long-term outcomes. Like, is this going to save me money down the road? Like, is a patient not going to have a cardiovascular event because they were treated with this drug? Um, things like that. So it's, there's so much risk. <laughs> uh, 
across the board. Um, so then I guess, you know, when you're thinking about that, just like broadly, you have to figure out which risks apply to each particular program. Um, is this more of a target risk? Like if it works, it works really well. Or, um, you know, if it doesn't work, then the, this entire program hinges on this particular target. Is it a clinical trial design risk? Um, do we think this trial was designed poorly? Um, is it just a you know, we think it's going to get approved and I have no uh, reservations about that, but I don't know if payers are going to cover it kind of risks. So this drug is never going to be commercially successful. Um, for lack of a better explanation, I think that there are just many. And for each particular program that you're looking at, it, there's going to be different priorities for different risks. So I just have one more question. Um, so thinking about uh, a lot of small to mid cap biotechs, uh, they have something that they're good at, right? Whether it's gene therapy or whether it's developing small molecules for a set of uh, like indications. But in, in Bridge Bio's case, you are targeting these ultra rare diseases, often likely with different phenotypes and, uh, and presentations. So there's not necessarily one connecting line between these separate uh, affiliates. But I'm wondering if you weigh a, a company or a drug's ability to sort of uh, synergize with one or more of your affiliate companies when when taking on a new investment. Uh, so if it adds something to an existing affiliate, uh, are you more likely to look at that company critically? Yeah, it's a it's a good question because you because you're right. They're they're just very spread out across many different organ systems, um, very diverse diseases. And I think that's the the way the model is set up is that you will have a dedicated team for that particular drug. So they are the expert um, and they should be able to develop this like as good as any other team in any other biotech. That's the idea. Um, but you're right. Like at some point, then there's just no synergy there. And I think that's another reason that the central portfolio intelligence team um, where my role is, is, is really important so we can get, keep an eye on all the different moving parts because they are so different. Thank you, Sam, so much um, for sharing your perspectives on equity careers and also for talking to us about bridge bio and rare disease considerations. Yeah, we really appreciate getting the chance to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glatzer. I'm Roshan Chikermain. And I'm Joe Varelli. Thank you for listening.